as I struggle alone. They say I have nothing, but they are so wrong. In my heart I'm rejoicing, how I wish they could sing. blessings on me. There's a roof up above me. I've a good place to sleep. There's food on my table and shoes on my feet. You gave me your love, Lord, and a fine family. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings on me. I know I'm not wealthy, and these clothes are not new. I don't have much money, but Lord, I have you. And to me, that's all that matters. Though the world cannot see, thank you, Lord, for your blessings on me. There's a roof up above me. I've a good place to sleep. There's food on my table and shoes on my feet. You gave me your love, Lord, and a fine family. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings on me. There's a roof up above me. I've a good place to sleep. There's food on my table. And shoes on my feet. You gave me your love, Lord, and a fine family. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings on me. Thank you, Lord, for your blessings on me. If you were blessed by that, say amen. That was so good. Thank you so much. If you have your Bible, open it up to Psalm 119. Psalm 119. I, did somebody record that? Did, we got that at least on a CD, right? Good, good. Those are precious. That's just a precious memory, too, singing with Mama. That's, that's great. Well, I had to send my son back into my office to get my glasses, um, because uh, it's part of my little sermon illustration this morning. You know, uh, I don't know if you, any of you have complicated uh, seeing eye conditions like I do uh, as we look for Psalm 119, and, and that's part of the issue. I don't actually need these glasses to read and see the, the words on this page. Uh, I don't know if you like, like me. I've got about three or four different ways that I have to have my vision uh, working. I have these glasses here. 
and uh, also will wear contacts sometimes as well, and they're the same strength, and they're really for distances. So if I was reading words back there on the back wall, I would need these, but everything up close, I don't need them at all. In fact, if I have them on, everything down here is blurry. It's the strangest thing. And, uh, and so I wear the contacts normally, and then uh, I have also another pair of glasses, uh, the reading glasses, right? So when I have the contacts, I can see distances, but I can't see up close. So I'm in my office, and I have to wear those reading glasses. Some of y'all call them cheaters, right? I don't call them that because in 2017, the word cheaters has a whole different connotation now, right? They've got a whole TV show about that. And I don't want to go around throwing around, where's my cheater? Where's my cheater? Uh, so that's just not a word I like to use. Um, and so, and then the third way I wear, I wear lenses is none whatsoever. I, like I said, I don't have to have anything to be able to see this, the words on the page. I can see just fine without glasses up close. It's all the distances that mess me up. And so I don't know about you, but like, it's kind of complicated. And so you may be like, well, why don't you wear the contacts in the pulpit and wear your reading glasses? That's because my doctor said, I don't want to ever hear about you doing that because, you know, when you do this, he said, you look old. You don't want to be an old-looking preacher. He said, besides that, all the preachers I know who do that, he said, at some point in the sermon, they take off the glasses and start shaking them at the people. And so, and so uh, I don't want to use glasses as a prop as, as, as when I'm preaching. So anyway, three different ways that I try to get things into focus. That's, that's essentially what I'm telling you, or four, something like that, right? Four different ways, three different ways I have to adjust my eyes so that I can read, so that I can see, so that I can drive legally. And I remember back in the day not needing anything. I, I didn't, you know, back in high school and early years of college, I really didn't need glasses at all. But through the years, a variety of things have gotten my focus out of whack. I don't know if you're like me, but there are a variety of things that get our focus out of whack. There's, of course, age and heredity. Your eyesight may be something you got from mama or daddy or something like that. But there's also daily variables that affect our eyesight as well. I don't know if you knew this. Stress can make our eyesight worse. Uh, high or low blood sugar can affect our eyesight. High or low blood pressure can affect our eyesight. Too much sunshine. Uh, I was reading an article recently about how people with blue eyes have a hard time seeing in sunshine. And, and I've got blue eyes, and, and that's always been the case. I always have to squint when the sun is really, really bright. Uh, and then uh, t just fatigue. If you've been reading a lot or looking at the computer or your phone a lot, then that, that wears your eyes out. All of these in some way can affect how our eyes are able to focus from day to day to day. So one day you may wake up and you're like, man, I can see really good. And the next day you're like, I can't see nothing. And, uh, and you're wondering, where, where's going on? It's day-to-day -day issues. And like our vision can be affected by a variety of things, our spiritual focus also can be affected by a variety of things. <laughs> maybe lack of sleep, right? Uh, maybe higher, low blood sugar or pressure can affect our spiritual focus. But Really, what we're talking about is not physical manifestations or things that affect our spiritual focus, but deep down what we're really talking about is when those physical things affect our focus, our spiritual focus, really that's a spiritual matter. I mean, this is a spiritual book dealing with spiritual matters, and today it's dealing with the spiritual matter of, of focus. This week as we look into Psalm 119, three times in this section there's a Hebrew word that he uses that can be translated either consider or look or I see, something of that nature, depending on your version. 
In my version, it translates that word, that Hebrew word, twice to consider, and one time as I look. The same idea there is though is that it's a it's a focused look at something. And 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 you know, sometimes we see this. We see this repetition as we've gone through Psalm 119, you're like, well, that sounds really familiar. That's that's the case. But understand, remember, we're never repeating something. There's always a different way that we can apply that to our heart. Today, we're looking at our focus, our spiritual focus. How is it affected? How is it affected and, and why it gets affected? And how can we refocus back on where it's supposed to be? The problem presented in Scripture is about focus. Sometimes as believers in Jesus, you know, we allow our focus to be distracted. It can be big things, it can be small things, but there's just a lot of things that distract us. Let's read what's distracting our psalmist. Again, we're in Psalm 119, verses 153 through 160. Consider my affliction and deliver me, for I do not forget your law. Plead my cause and redeem me, revive me according to your word. Salvation is far from the wicked, for they do not seek your statutes. Great are your tender mercies, O Lord, revive me according to your judgment. Many are my persecutors and my enemies, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous and am disgusted because they do not keep your word. Consider how I love your precepts. Revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. The entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. Heavenly Father, we thank you for your scripture. We thank you for its truth. We thank you for its power and its ability to change us from the inside out. Lord, that we would submit right now to you, that we would submit to your very presence in this place and simply offer ourselves as willing sacrifices before you that say, Lord, how do I need to change in light of your word, in light of your presence, in light of what you're saying to me, God? And we call upon you because you are powerful. You have the words of life. So get me out of the way, Lord. Speak through your word, speak through me, speak through your presence in this place and change us. Let us not leave this place the same way we walked in. And it is in your name I pray, Jesus. Amen. Three distractions that are in the psalmist's life that I think we probably can relate to in 2017. Uh, just pulling out from the scripture, the first one is this, is the, his personal afflictions. I mean, that's how he starts off, Lord. He says, consider, that's that word, by the way, look. Look upon, see my affliction, and deliver me. His personal afflictions were distracting his focus from God. He was all focused, and he wanted God to see. He, I guess, forgot maybe God sees all things. Now, we don't exactly know at this point what his affliction was. He doesn't really tell us. It doesn't really matter, though, does it? Because if you've ever experienced any kind of affliction, you know the first thing we do is we start trying to, we, we kind of look at ourselves. We start... We start seeing, what do I need to do to take care of me? It could be sickness, it could be family troubles, it could be job troubles, strife in your personal relationships with others, strife in your relationship with God. It could be affliction brought on by others and their doings. Again, the psalmist doesn't tell us what it is, but the point is not about the affliction. The point is this, affliction attempts to get our focus off of God. 
Affliction attempts to get our focus off of God and onto itself, or worse, try to get our focus onto us. I know we've talked a lot about affliction as we've gone through this chapter 119. We've talked about troubles, we've talked about trials, but it does not make up a portion. It does, I mean, it's important because it makes up a major portion of our lives. Many of you have attested to the fact that you always seem to be going through some sort of troubled spot in your life. And in those moments of affliction, those moments of trouble, we we tend to take our eyes off of Jesus, the source or the solution to that affliction, and instead put them on to the affliction. Sometimes I think we believe we can find the solution to our problems on our own. We can reason them out or logically come to a solution on our own. We forget we're supposed to take everything to God. There's nothing too small or too big to take to God. Psalm 55.22 tells us to cast our burdens on the Lord and He will sustain you. He will never permit the righteous to be moved. I wonder if you notice verse 154 as well. He says, plead my cause and redeem me. Remember, 119, Psalm 119 is a prayer the psalmist is offering up to God. And he's saying to God, plead my cause. And I started wondering exactly, what does he mean? Why is he telling God to plead his cause? Who would God plead his cause to? And I started thinking, you know what, this may be one of those mentions that you see in the Bible to the fact that God exists as a a trinity. He is God the Father, God the Son, God the Spirit. He has always been existing in that way. God has always been a trinity. And so when he says this, plead my cause, perhaps this is a foreshadowing of what the Bible tells us about Jesus Christ, that he is our great advocate. You know, we have a great advocate in God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. Uh, When we were going through the book of Romans in our Wednesday night Bible study, we had a good laugh about what the Bible said about how the Holy Spirit groans on our part. And we laughed about, well, sometimes we groan a little bit louder than we should maybe. But we, we really focused in on the truth that the Bible tells us that the Holy Spirit actually prays for us when we don't know what to pray. We have a great advocate, someone on our side, and that someone is God. If we have Jesus as our Lord and Savior, God is on our side. And if God is for us, who can be against us? That's right. 1 John 2.1 says this, My little children, I'm writing these things to you so that you may not sin. But if anyone does sin, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ, the righteousness. The righteous. We need to put on the lens of Jesus Christ so that our vision is not blurred by our personal affliction. Lately, when I've been thinking about affliction, personal affliction, I've been thinking about ducks. Not like duct tape, but D-U-C-K-S, ducks. Because I don't know if you knew this, very interesting stuff, right? Ducks are waterproof. That's why they can be in the cold water, uh, in the car, in the cold water, it doesn't seem to bother them. And there's an old saying, like, water off the tail of a duck. You know why they say that, right? It's because when water hits the tail of a duck, it just rolls right off. You know, when we keep our focus on Jesus and trouble hits us, especially what I'm talking about is that insignificant trouble, we need to be like that duck and allow Jesus Christ to trouble-proof us and let it just roll right off our tail. The problem is, is we want to focus on the trouble. The problem is we want to focus on the affliction. And when the affliction is at the hands of others, we want to focus on them. 
You know what? We live in a day where social media is constantly bringing us something to get our tells all crinkled up about. We need to learn to let it roll off of Jesus, roll off our back. Put the lens of Jesus Christ on and don't let people push us over the edge over insignificant uh, stuff that is no eternal, eternal uh, bearing on our lives whatsoever. Can I just encourage you that when trouble hits, evaluate it and ask yourself, is this really worth my feathers getting ruffled over? And pray and ask the Lord to take it and to be like that duck and just let it roll off. Let it roll off and move on. Move on. We, we are children of the King. Don't let us be troubled by insignificant stuff. The second distraction for the psalmist isn't his own troubles, but the actions of the wicked. The actions of the wicked. Let me be sure that you know that words like wicked or the unrighteous, when they appear in the Bible, it's, it's not necessarily judging the, uh, the actions of an individual because we are not made unwicked or righteous by our own actions. The Bible is very clear on this. Without Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, you are unrighteous. I am unrighteous. And so when it refers to the wicked or the, uh, the, ju or the unjust or the unrighteous, it is referring to those who have rejected God as their Lord and Savior. So that's what this word, the actions of the wicked, is referring to. If not for Jesus, we would have no righteousness at all. And the psalmist is saying, I'm disgusted with their actions. He is distracted by them because salvation is far from them. He is distracted by them because they do not seek after the Lord. I wonder also if he might be distracted by them because it seems like even though they uh, are far from the Lord, even though they don't care anything about the Word of God, they still seem to be succeeding in life. Sometimes the biggest distraction to my faith is seeing that the wicked succeed. Anybody ever struggled with that? You know what? Sometimes, here's what I do. I forget God loves to bless humanity whether they love Him or not. You know what? One of the things I miss about Brother Jamie being over there is he often reminded me that God lets it rain on the just and the unjust. God blesses the righteous and the unrighteous. We don't need to get distracted by that happening. We don't need to say, be sitting there thinking, well, they don't deserve that. They're not living like a Christian. They don't deserve that. They haven't been doing good things. But instead, we need to be thankful that God is blessing them in spite of that. We need to be thankful that we're seeing a, a physical manifestation of God's grace on humanity. And Romans 5, 8 in action, God's love was demonstrated in this way, that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. Let's not be distracted because the wicked seem to be succeeding. And let us not forget that whatever successes they enjoy this side of eternity, as long as they keep rejecting Christ, those will end this side of eternity. And instead of being upset, instead of being distracted by what they seemingly being able to get away with, let us be motivated and driven to our knees to praying for them. That they won't, uh, they won't keep neglecting this blessing from God, because more than likely, God is trying to bless them to open their eyes and illuminate the Word to them. And now let's not also live with the attitude of, yeah, you're right. The wicked are going to get what they got coming. No, instead, let us pray for their salvation. It's real easy for us to get out of focus when we're looking at the lives of others. Have you ever heard this phrase? 
keeping up with the Joneses? That's a real popular phrase from a long time ago. Unfortunately, what so often happens with Christians is they see the success of the Joneses and their lack of spiritual commitment to the Lord. Time out. Is there anybody with the last name Jones here? I don't think there is. That's why I went with this. Okay, good. So I don't want anybody to have a, a family in mind. Uh, anyway, they see the success of, a, of, of somebody and their lack of spiritual commitment to the Lord, and they start to question their own spiritual commitment to the Lord. See, that's the real problem with being distracted by the actions of the wicked. And so they start saying things like this. Well, the Joneses have a nice car and a nice house, and they don't go to church at all. Maybe I don't have to do this God thing either. Well, the Joneses have lots of friends over their house every Saturday, and they drink and party, and they have a great time, and they don't spend any time reading the Bible, and everything seems to be going well. Maybe we can do the same thing and just forget about this God thing. Well, the Joneses don't struggle with sickness. They don't have cancer at all. And I've never seen them go to church, or they only go to church once a year. Maybe I can stop doing this God thing. You see, the problem is, is that when we start thinking like this, God is not a rock of salvation, a tower of refuge. He is actually being turned into our good luck charm. Is God your good luck charm? I don't know if you're checking with me. You see, we want to do the God thing and see God bless us because we're doing the God thing. But what if God doesn't bless us like he's blessing the wicked? Do we start thinking, well, I, maybe I don't have to do the God thing anymore? That's, that's a real popular way of preaching, by the way, right? I don't know if you've heard, there's this whole thing about prosperity preaching. I don't know a lot about it, but basically it says, as long as you do the godly thing, God will bless you. That's not biblical. In fact, what we see in the Bible is often God's people are troubled constantly. I shouldn't do the God thing because He's going to bless me and give me a good life. I should do the God thing because of the eternal blessing, the un, untangible blessing that we don't see this side of heaven because of the truth and the hope of His Scripture telling us what awaits us and how He loves us. But when we don't get the blessing, we, we start questioning, why do we even do the Christian thing? And when we realize the rabbit's foot doesn't actually bring us luck, what do we do with that rabbit's foot? Put it in a sock drawer. We give it to someone who may believe in it. Or we just throw it away. God is not a good luck charm. Let us not be distracted. Let us not allow our vision to be impaired by the actions of others, especially those who reject the name of Jesus and seem to be succeeding in life. Instead, let us put on the lens of Jesus that we can see clearly in the midst of the cloud of activity going on in other people's lives. Finally, finally, the psalmist is distracted by his own moral goodness. His own moral goodness. You'll notice this follows on the heels of his complaints against the wicked. They are bad, but he says, but God, look at me. Look, consider how good I am, essentially is what he says. Consider my moral goodness. Did you see that? Many are my persecutors and my enemies. They don't turn from your testimonies. Yet, I'm sorry, yet I do not turn from your testimonies. I see the treacherous and the disgusted because they do not keep your word. Consider, there it is, how I love your precepts. Look at me. Focus on me. Though I have persecutors, I do not disobey. Though I'm disgusted by those who do disobey, 
And in fact, Lord, I love your law, the law they despise. Look at me. Do you know who is usually the most impressed with us? Us. Do you know who usually shines the brightest light on us? Us. Do you know who likes to overlook our sinfulness and glorify our personal righteousness? Us. I don't think anyone is as impressed with us as us. I don't think anyone is a bigger fan of us than us. I don't know about you, but I love me some me. I love to think about me. I love to glorify me. I, I love to, 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 to brag or boast about what I have done. And you may not hear me do it out loud. I do it enough for God. And God has to come back and say, really? Even when we think we are being humble, we are actually thinking about ourselves. I know this guy who used to just tear himself down. He was so down on himself, he thought he couldn't do anything right. In fact, he thought he was a failure at just about everything. In fact, for the longest time, he honestly did not see anything positive about his place in this world whatsoever. But the Lord got a hold of him and showed him how that those were actually selfish thoughts. Because anytime you are the focus of you, you are self-centered. And that's what God revealed to this guy, that he was being self-centered. Even though he was, he was, he was actually, it, was, it seemed like he was being humble, it was actually just self-centered pity party stuff. Anytime you are the center of your thoughts, it's self-centeredness. Self-centered simply means you are the center of your universe. And if you are the center of your universe, if I am the center of my universe, God isn't. How do we know, though, that these are really about getting focus off of the Lord? How do we know that these three things are really about getting the focus off of God? He doesn't actually say that, right? He doesn't actually say, God, help my focus get back on you. You're right, he doesn't. But to me, the clue is in the context. Because in the midst of each of these points where he says, consider, consider, I look, you also see this repetitive phrase, revive me. Now that's a phrase we've talked about before. That's a phrase that the psalmist has repeated throughout chapter 119, revive me. He says it three times in this, in verse 154, revive me according to your word. In verse 156, revive me according to your uh, judgments. And then verse 159, revive me, O Lord, according to your loving kindness. We've talked about this before. Revive me is a phrase that means bring me back to life. Resuscitate me. Breathe life back into me. There, there's this picture of basically you're deflated because of what's going on around you. And God has to literally reinflate you. We've talked about this phrase before because David has used this phrase before. Revive me. O Lord, and you'll find it throughout the book of Psalms, not just Psalm 119. I wonder if you and I realize how desperately we need God to breathe life into us every single day. Because there is so much that tries to deflate us. There is so much that takes, or tries anyway, to take life away from us. Our afflictions, our adversaries, focusing on our own moral goodness, focusing on the wickedness of others, all of these can distract us from God. Distracted by these things, take from us only what the Lord can give us. What am I talking about? Well, Jesus said, abide in me and you will bear much fruit. Now, most of the time when I think about that scripture in John 15, abide in me and you will bear much fruit, apart from me and you can do nothing, 
I usually think about like the disciples, making disciples, uh, converting people, evangelism. But you know, there's other fruit that the Bible mentions that are spiritual fruit that we produce, that when we are a part of Jesus, when we abide in Jesus, He, he, uh, he produces in us. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control, meekness, righteousness. These are fruits. These are spiritual fruits that we cannot produce on our own. Have you allowed your afflictions to steal your peace? Have you allowed the actions of others to steal your joy? Have you allowed something to take away your ability to love, to extend the love of God? How have you been distracted from the fruit of Christ that comes because you are abiding in Christ? Has focusing on your own moral goodness stolen your hope or your humility? Then like the psalmist, we need to say, Revive me, O Lord. Breathe life back into me. Because I know joy and love and peace and humility and righteousness, these are things that only you can produce. Revive me. Breathe life back into me. Charles Spurgeon, a famous preacher from the 1800s, says this about this revive me statement. He says, more life means more love, more grace, more faith, more courage, more strength, and if we get these, we can hold up our heads before our adversaries. God alone can give this quickening, which is an old word for revival, for quickening, but to the Lord and giver of life, the wink is easy enough, and He delights to perform it. Amen, Spurgeon. God delights in breathing life into us. Do we want Him breathing life into us? You see, the issue with our spiritual focus isn't the small, minute details or even the mega life effector. The issue is where we are looking. And like the psalmist, when we look at ourselves, when we look at our problems, when we look at others, life is going to get out of focus. Spiritual life is going to get out of focus. No matter what, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. Hebrews 12.2 tells us, looking to Jesus, the founder and perfecter of our faith, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. Did you catch that? As he went to the cross, he went to it in the joy that was set before him. Don't you want the joy that can face affliction and trouble and trial no matter what? So do we just pray? Revive me, O Lord? Yeah. But the psalmist requests it, a little bit differently each time. He says, revive me according to your word or promise, depending on your version. The word of God is life-giving. I cannot, I cannot emphasize enough how good it is to spend time, as much time as possible, in the word of God. The problem is, the problem is, is this, this is not entertaining. We are an entertaining-driven society. If I told you that Charles Stanley was going to be here for the month of December, preaching every Sunday, this place would be packed. Packed. But if I told you every Sunday we were going to open the Word of God and read five chapters, pray that God would apply it to our lives and go home, this place would be empty. Because we want to be entertained. We don't want to be revived by God's Word. We don't want to be revived by His promises. 
He says also, revive me according to your judgments. I believe this is a reference to God's justice. You know, when I'm distracted by the actions of the world around me, I just have to remember that in the end, God will have justice, and in addition, all glory will be given to Him. In this world, there will be troubles. That's what the Bible tells us. That's what Jesus told us. But we can be of good cheer because He has overcome the world. We need to be revived by that truth. And finally, he says, revive me by your steadfast love. You want a revitalization in your soul? You want a revitalization in your spirit? Then you need to daily remind yourself of the unending, unchanging, unabashed, unashamed, never-ending, never-going-away love God has for you. That right there should set you on fire. The love that God has for you. It is unequivocal and it is unequal to any other love you will ever experience in your life. And it should set our hearts ablaze. Mainly because we don't deserve it. But he gives it anyway. And then look at how the psalmist ends this section. He says, the entirety of your word is truth and every one of your righteous judgments endures forever. It's a repetitious statement, basically, that he made last week, or he didn't make last week. We read last week, and then it was also uh, kind of synonymous the week before that. You know, though we may be afflicted, God's word is true, and it endures forever. Though the wicked can be a distraction to us, God's word is true, and it endures forever. Though I have some self-centered thoughts in my mind sometimes, God's word is true, and it endures forever. The psalmist has learned and was continuing to learn this lesson. May we do likewise. The scriptures are true in Genesis, just like they are in Revelation. They are true in the Pentateuch, just like they are in the four Gospels. The scriptures are true from beginning to end, and they endure forever. I was talking to a man this week. He was asking me if I had a fresh word from the Lord about how to change a perspective he was dealing with. And I said, friend... My new word is the same old word. The only way to get God to change your perspective is that you get with God. You need to spend time in His word and pray. There's nothing new. You just need to do it. You just need to set your nose to the grindstone and ask God, revive me according to your word, according to your loving kindness. Life is found in the Lord and nowhere else. In His word and in prayer, we need to keep our eyes on Jesus. We need to spend time praying and studying His Word. Prayer and Bible study still work. You know, it's one of the reasons that we've started doing these warrior words memory verse. Because God's Word is important and it is empowering, it is life-giving. And you need as much of it as possible in your life. It's one of the reasons we've been doing this 40 days of prayer emphasis in this church. If you haven't been doing this, I want to encourage you to get in on it. We're almost at the halfway point. Today's day 19. We have some of the guides, too, if you didn't get one. Or it's online. Man, we've made it public. I want to encourage you to get in on this. We need to be in prayer. We need God's input. We need God's leadership. We need God to put life in us. And I want to encourage you one other way. If you have never experienced that life that only God can put in you, that, that new life from Jesus Christ, then you know we're going to have a time of response this morning, just a time of invitation. And I want to encourage you to just respond however the Holy Spirit is leading you as our musicians come and play. Would you bow with me in a word of prayer?
Father, we thank you for this morning. We thank you for your word. We thank you for your presence in this place. And I just ask, Lord, that you would change, change us, that you would speak to us. Let us respond obediently uh, to this word from you. Not from me, but to you. We want to respond to you. Thank you, Jesus, and it's in your name I pray. Amen. Would you stand with